So guess who's back just in time for Halloween? Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Dr. No. Kaldorf. No. He's uh not Kaldorf. Dr. Kaldorf is back with a bold new branding. It's not herd immunity. No, no. It's focused protection. No. Don't get the two confused. Well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Focus protection is just we're we're gonna focus on letting some people live. That's what the right. focus is. Right, right, right. It's not it's right. not herd immunity. It's not targeted protection. It's focused protection. <laughs> it's just differences of robustness, you know. So like Coldorf Coldorf has gotta have the distinction now of the only person who's been like favorably interviewed by a certain major left wing publication and uh <laughs> also been consulted at the uh, Trump administration, HHS. That's really a beautiful <laughs> distinction. <laughs> what a resume! Yeah. I have to say, um, so I've been I've been replaying Bloodborne recently. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. My favorite Halloween. Experience. I must say, which yeah feels obscenely appropriate in the context of the pandemic. Can I just especially, say, perfect for the pandemic. <laughs> which uh, yeah, it, to to me, it like Coldorf strikes me as the kind of character who must have like appeared in the town to convince them to do like crazy blood transmutations or something that lead to everyone <laughs> becoming monsters. I can just imagine Coldorf in that White House meeting, just being like, "Tonight, uh, you join the hunt. <laughs> Plenty of beasts out there. Sooner or later, you become one yourself." Um, oh man. death panel we've got a good episode for you today but first i'll just quickly plug the patreon we had a really good premium episode on monday Mm -hmm. um patreon.com slash death panel pod support the show get bonus episodes win-win situation right and a discount on our sick merch yep exactly so check your sign up email for a special special code (laughs) um (laughs) so uh we're gonna get into um the latest with COVID cases and the rise of COVID cases, not just in the U.S., but sort of all over the place. Um, But before that, I do think maybe we should talk about the Kaldorf herd immunity a little bit more. You know, mm-hmm. I have to say, I hate when people do like the soothsayer thing or whatever and say, wow, exactly what we thought would happen, what we said would happen would happen. But I do want to point out that exactly two weeks ago, we had Abby <laughs> Cardis on the show. Uh, Phil and B did a great interview with Abby to talk about exactly why Martin Kolderf's ideas are bad and harmful and also <laughs> lazy, frankly. You know, again, as we basically kind of suggested might happen actually like Alex Azar even re- uh, released a statement saying like very plainly yes I really enjoyed talking to them because their uh, their scientific background like uh, meshes very well with our with our policy perspective on handling the coronavirus <laughs> crisis so they really have uh, a nose for bad and lazy over there don't they you know yeah. what's a bad sign when an idea is only popular because the same five people are giving interviews about it over and over and over again and well, you know it's just you start to see them pop up and you've got to wonder right why is it only Kaldorf and Sunetra Gupta and Scott Atlas who are there ready to go. Why is it them over and over again? Maybe it's because it's a bad idea. Well, but 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 also it just it should it should speak for itself that if you're vetting somebody's scientific 
theory of something because it it backs up your previous <laughs> assumptions about that thing <laughs> that you were probably wrong. But it's also the whole I mean, point. They have a squad now, though. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They have this thing called the the Great Barrington Declaration, <laughs> which is have you, have you guys seen this? Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's it's Gupta and uh, and Kaldorf and and somebody else, and they now have like thousands of people at very reputable, you know, many of whom are at very reputable uh, institutions, and they're all signing on to this thing, which they say is not herd immunity. Uh, and I guess if you, apparently if you just say that it's not a herd immunity strategy, it's not, but, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's sort of like, it's, it's a classic American scheme, right? Which is that like, number <laughs> one, you don't do the dumb basic things that you, like everyone else can do because they require like, I don't know, a modicum of uh, social solidarity of some kind, or like they would risk having like some solidaristic culture, which would be ultimately toxic to the project of capitalism. But then, but then what you promise is the solution to that is some like ridiculous sort of nimble innovation that like, we're going to somehow be able to, centrally technologically control like Mm -hmm. uh the like cordoning off of various parts of society while other parts of society are like allowed to i mean it's sort of like it's like a level of central planning that would make a stalinist like wet their pants so it's sort (laughs) of um, yeah the sort of concept of like focus protection also relies on a a much more robust testing infrastructure than we even have right and and even that's coming in the context of knowing that sort of this testing strategy especially as we've seen um in president trump's orbit this week that this like absolutely does not work as a primary measure it should be in addition to like contact tracing and in addition to PPE and being able to stay home if you are sick, um, you know, any any push that people can make right now to try and not frame school reopenings as being a potential vector seems to be really, really um, like foregrounded right now in media narratives. And the, the thing that's like very frustrating is that essentially what we've seen already is that this is turbocharging community spread, right? Mm-hmm. We have like Wisconsin's a very good example. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things where there was with the opening of universities, obviously that was something that affected community spread everywhere. Right. But in Wisconsin, it was particularly bad because in, in many of these jurisdictions, especially in like the northeastern part of the state or like in the Fox Valley uh, around Green Bay, you just have jurisdictions that there's just no compliance with any sort of public health uh, regulation all like bars are at full capacity. Uh, restaurants are at full capacity. Uh, like people are uh, not wearing masks sort of in, in great number. And so there are all of these chances for uh, the virus to spread. I mean, and the same goes with, with like K-12 schools. So you, you see stories, you know, in the journal Sentinel, you know, with some regularity of like third grade teachers uh, dying and and that's the sort of thing that like the idea like we can just like put on hold the idea that like whether or not this this thing that they're talking about with like focused protection like in some hypothetical world would like work but it's if you're an epidemiologist and even if you have like some good faith sensibility about that and you don't see how it's being instrumentalized i just feel bad for you because all of your training 
has failed you. Like your PhD is worthless, effectively. <laughs> well, I, I want to. I want to. I think apropos of that, actually, I want to mention uh, one thing, which is I think it's kind of generous to call um, Koldorf an epidemiologist because while he is an epidemiologist, a lot of the work that he actually does is is I think mostly referred to actually as a biostatistician, mm. meaning he's a fucking statistician. Like which means which means like, yeah, sure, if everything I mean, this is one of the things that frustrates me the most about like all of the responses or whatever in like the state planning or something, because a lot of it is based on this like statistics game mm-hmm. situation or like, oh well, you know, uh let, let's say well I, I i guess outdoor dining is totally safe because a biostatistician or something told me that like it's less likely that you'll get it outdoors or something than it is to get it indoors and that's like really far from the point mm-hmm. i want to raise a compl- i want to raise a complication here though right i think here here's the problem um and obviously they don't solve this problem but i i don't know I don't know what you do as a result of this problem, which is that like fundamentally like a significant place that uh, both the federal and state governments and local governments have failed in solving this crisis is number one, like providing anybody with the resources to actually endure any economic catastrophe that would happen as a result of actually having serious public health measures. Right. And two, like the sociological horse is already out of the sociological barn uh, to some extent, <laughs> which is that like you've already created this idiotic culture. Like when people say like the, the term COVID fatigue has come up a lot and I hate that term because it's like, is it fatigue if someone's force feeding me sleeping pills? Is that fatigue? <laughs> Am I just getting t- Oh, I'm so tired that. Uh, oh, oh, why? Oh, because you've been like, like <laughs> Uh, slowly starving me of oxygen (laughs) yes slowly starving (laughs) me of oxygen i mean but 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 i do think like both very explicitly on the right um we've created a culture where like uh taking public health precautions makes you a wuss and then even sort of among professional class people it's like oh you know, you can only make so many sourdough loaves, I guess what I'm saying. And like, <laughs> when that's the way that you're supposed to endure it, uh, you know, that that has a, a shelf life. So, like, I don't know what you do if, number one, like the fiscal state just continues to, like, embrace uh, austerity. And number two, I don't know what you do with this sort of sociological horse problem. Uh, and I don't see <laughs> how sociological that- horses. <laughs> I mean, I don't see how that results in anything but one of two things. Number one, you just you create a cultural level of acceptance around greater levels of mass death or Mm. you somehow try to create a justification for some more authoritarian state. I I don't know. Yeah, that's such a good point, Phil. And I mean, it's funny because like they're actually kind of is a model for doing the thing that Kaldorf wants to do, which is this, you know, targeted uh, isolation of certain segments of the population. And that was what we saw in the like, you know, in the push from like, oh, we want to get rid of all the alms houses because that's so Victorian. (laughs) So we need to build like sanatoriums and institutions instead because these, you know, really extreme cases can't be in the community, right? Because they're a danger to themselves and others in the community. So we need to remove them from the community via authoritarian means and warehouse them elsewhere 
there. Yes. Right? For the duration. Well, the, I mean, the peak irony anyway is that even if you did some sort of stupid fucking segment the population up by risk factor or whatever, still, if someone is like a quote unquote healthy individual who then becomes a long hauler, then mm. what do you just say? Okay, well, now that person's chronically ill. So like, let's uh, dump them in the sick let's, bin. Let's yeah, let's put them in the sick bin. Exactly. Let's put them in the almshouse. Let's uh, let's set the Tinder up for the almshouse and uh, not 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 like the app, like the fire starting mechanism. The thing is, when, um, when something is when, when anything is new, it always looks like an app. The like sanatoriums <laughs> were like the apps of an the app, 19th century. Okay. It, it always looks like an app or a porthouse. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My God. Um, well, I mean, maybe that can. Maybe this is like a good uh, point because I, th- I, you know, again, I, th- I think it's um, we've uh, we've talked uh, plenty about Coldwarf, and I'm I'm sure that he'll have plenty more times, um, plenty more chance to shine, especially because, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that the Trump administration will relish having a Harvard uh, statistician um, say, <laughs> say uh, you know, positive things about their uh, herd immunity strategy in, you know, like a vaguely uh, European accent. But so, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, talking about Koldorf two weeks ago and now it being, you know, someone who's like brought in as an audience for the White House was a bit like soothsaying or something. But we also have a we've also had a pretty good record recently with, for example, (laughs) we just last week we talked about testing and uh, went in depth on uh, how like the Abbott rapid test is a pretty dangerous thing to try Mm -hmm. to set as a standard uh, versus Mm -hmm. like a more trustworthy uh, PCR test. And uh, here's a headline from The New York Times on Tuesday. The White House bet on Abbott's rapid tests. It didn't work out. Okay. Uh, now, on Monday, in our patron episode, <laughs> um, we talked at length about co- uh, Trump's COVID diagnosis. Uh, we explained the uh, Regeneron uh, monoclonal antibody cocktail treatment in detail. Um, and we made a prediction that if if Trump uh, appeared to be getting better, or if he thought he just liked it, and he attributed his uh, symptom uh, reduction to the Regeneron cocktail that he would uh, try and go ahead and push an emergency use authorization for it. (laughs) And uh, lo and behold, last night, uh, who appears in a proof of life video, but the big man himself. And um, (laughs) big man, get up. Right. Big man, big man, fall down, get up. Uh, Sorry, that won't make any sense if you haven't listened to our Trump episode. So go ahead and (laughs) become a patron, become a patron. Patreon.com slash death panel pod. So now, yeah, there's a now uh, he says he wants an emergency use authorization for Regeneron. Uh, Regeneron has applied for one, as has Eli Lilly, another monoclonal antibody producer who uh, we also mentioned in that episode. Um, so the exact situation, unfortunately, we soothsayed this one pretty good. Um, so that gets us to today's prediction, at, a.k.a. the obvious truth in front of us, which is that we are at the beginning of the legit second wave and fucking no one is talking about it. Uh, we are, <laughs> like, we're in it. Yeah, we're yeah. we're in it already. I think we're chest deep right now. I, I think, you know, one take I saw that this morning that made me really laugh was no, no, it's it's not that there are waves. It's that there are splishes and splashes of COVID. (laughs) And it's like when you get in a pool and the water splishes and splashes around. (laughs) I mean, what the fuck? (laughs) 
they were trying to talk about how well you how know it, it how it spikes in different the, places in right. the country. It's, it's sloshy. Yeah. It's you know how the, when the elevator opens splash. in The Shining, the blood doesn't just come right <laughs> out at you. It moves around like a yeah. wave of blood. Look, the, the the elevator can only get off at one floor at a time. Right now, it's getting <laughs> off in Wisconsin. Soon, soon the blood elevator is, uh, you know, next stop, New York. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then it's headed yeah. back, back down south. That's It goes up and down. That's how it works. Right. I feel exactly. like people are running out of metaphors to make COVID appear in any way like still a force of nature that that's so ephemeral that we have to just let it pass over us. You know, that's what I think a lot of this sort of framing is, right? It's sort yeah. of the inevitability of COVID. Oh, it splishes and splashes throughout the pool. Right. You know, well, it's and, a, and also it's a the, wave, the, you know, it's so passive. Right. It's, it's funny. Cause it's also just, I think it sometimes has to do with like what visual models are like being also like used to describe it on cable television as well and like don't get me wrong i am a gamer and i love like good fluid dynamics but this (laughs) this is just (laughs) fucking stupid it's becoming fucking asinine it's a pandemic it's just i I mean it it does pandemic stuff the thing that's so amazing to me is like right now it's hurricane season so you would think that people would be able to grasp what is actually the most perfect metaphor which is a hurricane where you've got all this data where you know it's coming it's coming you see it you know how big it is (laughs) you know how bad it is it's coming it's coming and then it hits and it's there and you stay inside for a little bit yeah (laughs) right like uh covid and a hurricane you know, as a sure. metaphor, metaphorical arrangement, you couldn't ask well, for a better pairing, really. I, I mean, right. if, you're, been, if you're wealthy enough, you evacuate somewhere else. And uh, if not, you just you board your shit up and you hope for the best. I mean, it's really strange, though, because I mean, like, so obviously, like, cases are, are jumping up, like DC cases are are up as very visibly evident uh, in the like current outbreak in like throughout the fucking white house uh, to the <laughs> point that like you have the like the press room of the white house did you guys see those photos of like the guys in the hazmat suits like spraying yeah. stuff to no. yeah. oh my god um, i'll probably make it like the image for the for yeah. like the the cover mm-hmm. uh for this because it's so good for soundcloud but like um the i don't know i mean I, like and I, I think people take some sort of like um i don't know cold comfort in in the idea that like Oh, well, like you hear this, this line all the time, uh, that is like, well, cases are going up, but like deaths haven't gone up yet. Um, so obviously ignores the fact that lag it, cases, isn't yeah, it? it takes, <laughs> I mean, takes time to die. Come uh, but on. Then, well, but then people always like say something like, uh, well, and you know, our treatments have gotten better. We've like figured or like, not that we have like, um, <laughs> treatments as in. Not that our like you know drug treatments have gotten flipping better, people like, over it, is what they're talking about. Yeah, they're talking prone, about proning. Proning. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we've gotten better at keeping people alive a little bit longer and killing them a little bit less quickly by accident. Well, and steroids right. too, in the case right. of the president. But like, so um, for but so I've been thinking about this, and it's like, okay, is it literally just that everyone doesn't want to deal with this until after the election? Mm. Uh, is it that like people's energy is sucked up by the election? But then this is this is not unfor- unfortunately this is like not confined to the United States. Um, although you see more things saying acknowledging uh, that like Europe is experiencing a second wave. But then you have like literally this week. Uh, let me just um, read this. Boris Johnson did a press conference where he said, uh, 
quote, there comes a moment when the state must stand back and let the private sector get on with it. We must not draw the wrong economic conclusions from the crisis. And, and those and those wrong economic conclusions would be what? Yeah. That, uh, the, the wrong economic conclusion, I guess, for Johnson would be that we could have done any. I mean, the wrong economic conclusion is like that we could have intervened in some way. Right. That there is no alternative. Yeah, yep. you know, We're, yeah. we must like let this private sector do the thing that it loves to do, which is to sacrifice the young blood to the virus. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time sort of like thinking about just just how this differs from like the first time. And I think it it more has to do with like the Phil, as you always put it, sort of like the actuary, the actuarial like table of it all. Like the first time this happened there was any incentive at all for there was there was an incentive to offer people sort of like you know like meager assistance uh because there was like uncertainty right on that like actuary t- actuarial table but now i feel like there's uh you know a- enough certainty to be able to sort of like model out the death wave the death curve the death sloshing whatever you want to fucking call it and that uncertainty has like gone considerably down for the political class. And thus, like they just have no incentive to uh, to do any kind of stimulus or bailout or economic relief for anybody because they're like, yeah, cool, cool. Like, that's that's fine. That, I mean, we can we can factor not, that in. Well, if you're not really worried that you know, an election will have consequences for you. Right. And I'm not just talking about like whether or not you win or lose, but like consequences, consequences, right. Then what, in, I mean, really what incentive Pitchforks do you have? Consequences. Yeah. <laughs> I believe Pointy you consequences. Yeah. Central Park. I mean, to, to really, to really respond. Right. And I think that that's, right. I mean, there's, there's a whole literature in political science on the, the problems with elections as a mechanism of, sort of accountability and how bad they are uh, sometimes at producing, uh, you know, uh, accountability or, or, or sort of, uh, you know, uh, good, uh, good outcomes, which is not to say that elections aren't absolutely essential for democracy. But the point is that, like, they are very incomplete when a bunch of other sort of mechanisms and instrumentalities don't exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, it's not surprising to me that in countries where workers have more power government takes more uh, sort of prospective action on these things because, I mean, they're quite worried that if they're not able to sort of take control of it, workers will. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they want to maintain the state's sort of high position in in the sort of tripartite bargaining scheme between state capital and labor. But, like, we don't obviously have that in the United States. And so what happens, right? Mm -hmm. It gets caught up in this, number one, like... uh, the sort of the normal fiscal politics of Congress. And, and there's this like debate about like, oh, you know, you know, two trillion. That's just that's just too much. That's just a wild number. It's like, why? Like <laughs> the Fed doesn't think that the Fed is basically like you can't do too much. There is no such thing as doing too much right now. If you do too much, who cares right. in the end? Right. Um, but but uh, but as a result of that, now we're just like caught into these squabbles where like like the state manufacturers, uh, you know, lobby group is like, well, our members literally will go bankrupt now if you try to do something that's good for public health. And and they're pissed off. Like there's an owner of a steakhouse in Milwaukee who who said, and I quote, this will be if, if these 
uh, new protection measures go into effect, that's going to be like the final nail in the coffin. <laughs> he was talking about the the coffin of closing the business, not the coffin of you know, people dying, obviously. <laughs> the coffin right? that holds but, the steakhouse. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But, but there's like a reason. But there's a reason why uh, that's happening. There's a reason why these manufacturers are like, uh, you know, filing suits because we've 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 done that we've created that um and so it's just i I think well well, they would much they would much rather they would much rather the bargain or 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 sort of the 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 status quo continue rather than like bailing out their workers who will like then have an incentive when they come back to work to like advocate for higher wages because that will they feel that that will also like push them out of business and that's like an existential fucking crisis for them so like you know they'd rather fucking close well also in the absence of any meaningful like uh state or local aid um or anything like that i think that's why you see all this like slippery bullshit from so many i mean the you know how to put it stuff like we you know we've mentioned uh i've I've, like i think we've mentioned like a couple times in the most recent episodes uh about how like ridiculous it is that for instance like florida just said like okay no more restrictions like open open up everything but like it also exactly the same bullshit happens in uh let's say anarchist jurisdictions (laughs) or these these places (laughs) where uh which are like governed by let's say liberal darlings um you know I think you you see it really clearly in in for example you know the the big thing that happened this week where on like Sunday Bill De Blasio said okay in New York in New York City like these zip codes are gonna like non essential businesses are gonna have to close down because mm-hmm. you know and not not just arbitrarily because like <laughs> literally because the when they did the reopening plan there there are like percentage uh like targets for when you hit a threshold mm-hmm. where it said, okay, now close that back down again to contain spread. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the plan that they implemented is even like sufficient, but like that was, that was why they were um, doing that. And then of course, like, you know, Cuomo uh, and like Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, like the next day goes and reverses that. And then you see him like in a press conference that day saying that like, if you're six feet apart from someone, Mm-hmm. You don't need to wear a mask, uh, even if you're indoors. Like if you're wearing, if you're <laughs> even s- indoors, even indoors. Like if you're that, even if you're indoors, if you're six feet apart from someone, like you don't need to wear a mask. Now, one thing that's especially troubling about that, we've talked about the six feet thing a lot. Like this, <laughs> I, I just want to point out how nakedly this is a whether he knows it or not. Like whether this is just a line he's been fed, or that like, or he really has like thought about it or whatever. This is so nakedly a thing to like keep the sanctity of like being able to have businesses open Mm -hmm. because one of the most troubling things to me about this whole thing is we've we've talked a lot about uh, I remember there was a study a long time ago uh, that uh, that I referenced that was like in in cold and humid conditions right Mm -hmm. that uh, virus can spread up to 20 feet in droplets right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. since then. Uh, it has become evident uh, that actually in very non-humid, in very like dry conditions, uh, it can also spread in like in cold, dry conditions. It actually spreads quite well, too. That makes a lot of sense, Um, right? Yeah. Um, Especially now that we're all acknowledging that it can be aerosolized, it makes extra, extra sense. Right. And that's kind of what I'm saying. So it's like, you know, cold, cold, dry weather outside, HVAC system, heating, 
Hmm. What's that do? Reduce humidity. Reduces your mucous membranes ability to protect you as Dries well. Dries your throat out. Dries so, out your mucus. So yeah, telling people that they can, if as long as they're six feet apart from each other, if they're indoors, they like don't necessarily have to wear a mask. Like, great. Good, great, good job, Andrew Cuomo. See, this like, is the yeah. same awesome. reason why they say to people like, don't overwash your face. Don't overwash your hands. You don't want to break the skin and strip the oils because it makes you more vulnerable. All these things, if you think about it, are things that happen in the winter, right? When you get dry skin. Yeah. This is like the idea that also like that six feet could protect you mask off in an interior space just i guess is assuming that um in cuomo's mind every interior space is is actually a vacuum of some kind (laughs) right and has zero air circulation right because otherwise you would have to acknowledge that six feet of distance only stops you from getting like a projectile droplet well, right. you are safe. You are safe if you're in a room with him because he sucks all the air out of it. But um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was really stupid. Please cut that. I just had to say it. It was like a verbal tick. No, we're keeping that in. <laughs> I mean, if you if you look at the state of if you look at the state of Florida, it makes a lot of sense, though, right? Like Florida yeah. doesn't take income tax, right? That's why people retire to Florida because if you live there six months in a day, you don't pay state income tax. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be collecting that tax from another point, right? You can't get it all from, you know, the the like revenue from private prisons, right? <laughs> you have to, you know, that's only what, like 35% of the budget. You have to get the rest from other places. And that's like alcohol sales, gasoline, you know, tobacco, um, durable goods, cars, boats, mm-hmm. property, right? They over and over again place property value over the value of human life because to a lot of these sort of state infrastructures, particularly in the South, who have like low income tax, um, you know, you really rely on these other tax revenues more than you do on the actual lives of the people in your Mm -hmm. state, right? Mm -hmm. Because an individual's ability to earn over time and their potential you know, long-term disability caused by a COVID infection doesn't matter so much to like a state that's not collecting income tax from them because you can just replace that with another consumer. Right. Mm. And like it, I think ideologically you see this often in Florida politics. And this is why I think people think that like everyone in Florida is crazy, but it's like, no, they're just incentivized to value physical goods like boats and homes and land over human beings. Right. And I think, and I think that like, I think the, the question that a lot of people ask sort of towards the beginning of all of this was that, um, if things get really, really bad, um, and the, the chances that, you know, somebody who's been affected or that you've been affected in one way or another, um, be it actually having the virus or, you know, not being able to, not being able to like do the things that you want to do economically or socially. Um, that will that somehow breed some different gestalt about what, what matters. And I mean, rather grimly, I think what we're seeing is that the prior prior beliefs mattered a lot here. They're like, essentially I think among a fair slice of people uh, we're at least seeing that it's, it's pretty easy to jack up your tolerance for risk and actually jack up your tolerance for like really horrible, grim uh, uh, outcomes. And there are all kinds of like cognitive pathways to doing that. Uh, You could either dismiss it and say, you know, it's not necessarily affecting me or 
you know, this was the uh, cost of doing business or, you know, this was bound to happen anyways. We talked about like deaths pulled from the future. Like all of those mm-hmm. things are still swirling around out there. Right. Um, and I, I think that like in the absence of something pretty powerful in terms of uh, the sort of cultural sort of moment or event or shift that, I, you know, th- those those prior beliefs are going to dictate a lot of what people see as tolerable. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. and another I think another strong way to do that, uh, Phil, too, actually, is not having uh, not having, for example, a reliable or accurate or up to date case count, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's in the case of stuff like uh, testing that we talked about on the main feed episode last week um, with like the rapid tests. Um, you know, I'm sure people have had the I'm sure some people, at least some of our listeners have had the experience maybe of like they, you know, they're like worried they get a they get like a covid rapid test, but they're maybe not able to get a PCR test, um, for example, mm-hmm. um, or through stuff like. Um, I mean, can we talk about like the Excel spreadsheet thing in England? Yeah. For example? Oh, yes. <laughs> Stuff like where they found 15,000 cases that just hadn't been tabulated and added to the public record because they ran out of fucking columns on the Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, the specific <laughs> thing is that they were exporting in one file format, which is a CSV, which has no limit on columns, into an Excel format, which does have a limit, and they forgot to make sure that they didn't drop data. The CSV, <laughs> the CSV file is a, is a wonderful invention and it is the equivalent of what the ideal the ideal type the platonic ideal of it's olive garden's <laughs> endless breadstick <laughs> and soup bowl i mean ideally there would be endless breadsticks there would be endless salad but in the excel file you get the reality of olive garden which is that there are not in fact endless breadsticks in yeah. the economy <laughs> My God, Phil, I'm so glad you went to Olive Garden because I was going to do a uh, file format to file format analogy that would have been uh, accessible for maybe 0.5% of our listeners. <laughs> Vince, when you're here, your family, buddy. Thanks. And what was that? <laughs> yeah. And what? And, oh, and I was what, just, what was that I, metaphor? I was going to start talking about o- I was going to start talking about OBJs. Oh but, yeah, uh, no, yeah. no, it's, <laughs> that's, that's that's not for the podcast. I that's forgot it was save that for right the now. save that one for the patron feed of the Discord. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I think so. When I read this story, I had a couple thoughts. Like one is it, it's actually interesting how mundane um, this is because like the yeah. file format in which the WHO requests national data is Excel uh, right. s- just for the purposes of standardization. So c- clearly like, so they're following, like uh, not every country's having this problem, but basically. maybe they will soon. I don't, I don't right. know. <laughs> um, like, right. Or maybe or, they yeah. are and we might not know. This might be the first case where it, it makes a big news hit that it's been that like, you know, 15,000 cases have been found, basically. Right. Yeah. Buried, you think buried Trump- in lost columns of an Excel spreadsheet. Right. Clippy, uh, Clippy emerges from the fucking ashes of like, society. <laughs> to say, columns of data. I found the lost. Um, anyway. Do you need help unfucking your COVID data? <laughs> no, oh. I mean, it. Uh, the... We should have some system that is a little bit more robust than you got to remember to check it didn't forget to import anything in order to to pass this data on. I mean, this is the thing that that always absolutely 
infuriates me about dealing with a private insurance company is that actually a lot of the ways that this that like medical data gets transmitted is using really arcane methods like insurance Mm -hmm. companies will be like oh yeah we'll reimburse you for your psychiatrist visits but you need to fax us um like a physical piece of paper and then send it in the mail also and it has to be between monday and friday uh between 1 and 3 p.m eastern you know, these sort of like and, and doctors, right? Like when I was applying for Social Security Disability, my doctors had to fax my entire medical record to SSA. That's over 1,100 pages to fax from seven different offices for one case, right? And that's mm-hmm. depending on every single office to make sure to put my Social Security number on the top of every single one of those 1100 pages and Mm -hmm. put them through facts right like hoping that none of them get lost and that everything ends up in ssa and that those thousands of pages can then you know make sure that i have health care right like the way that this data that is so important right it's absolutely crucial for not only like ssa to do its job but for like epidemiologists to do their job and biostaticians to do their jobs as well (laughs) is like you need to make sure that the data gets in a complete format to where it needs to go and that it's accessible and available right it, it it makes me laugh every time anybody says the word contact tracing because i'm just like there's no contact tracing if you're faxing things to each other. That's not a thing. We can't even begin the process of what contact of contact tracing. If literally someone's like, Oh shit, you didn't fax it between three and five. So like all of these, you know, you know, like, no, I feel like this is like a, the data infrastructures around COVID just worldwide, as well as the promises made by various sectoral leaders, let's say, uh, that uh, about the kind of data we could have, it all smacks a little bit to me of the Elizabeth Holmes uh, story, which is that like <laughs> yeah. data, the sort of the data sort of fiction thrives in the idea that like it just exists in the world and can be frictionlessly and like costlessly delivered, uh, you know, under budget, you know, deficit neutral, all of these sort <laughs> of things. And like the reality is, okay, so the, what's the problem with Excel spreadsheet in, in the UK? It's rows, right? Not columns. Um, right. So right, there, right. there's only a certain number of rows. Well, if you're actually doing a really large number of testing, that's a hell of a lot of rows. Um, and, Are you shilling for fax machines? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, no, no, I'm not shilling for fax machines, but it's just, just like th- there's a relationship between like the data architecture and the actual mm-hmm. thing that you're trying to do in the world. And like mm-hmm. one thing one thing that I think is certainly the case in the U S as well is that like the Arctic architectures we have for data and that we've like under financed also, uh, mm-hmm. is that they're like not prepared for a, a, a good or even like subpar testing regime. Mm-hmm. There's just simply too much data. Right. <laughs> and the, like the UK story was sort of like, it was very, um, it was very thick of it. It was like an, it was a thick of it sort of like oopsie. Um, but like, 
the U.S. like what's going on in the U.S. is just not getting reported on because uh, let's face it, like national political reporters don't give a shit about the states or the localities and their right. editors don't know shit about the states or localities. And that's just, yeah. you know, part of the sickness of journalism as a profession. But like, um, you know, what's going on in Texas is, is like really, really illustrative. So in Texas, uh, they've had huge problems with the state's uh, data architecture around uh, COVID. And the like the big sort of the background of this is that like the CDC has for years been trying to make state's data on disease surveillance interoperable. Mm. And so to do that, it created this thing called NEDS, which is like the National Electronic Disease Surveillance System. Um, so basically it's like a base. <laughs> it's a it's a base system that states can modify and update every so many years uh, right. that is is interoperable across states. And you can like basically it's the thing that allows the CDC to aggregate data from the states really, really easily. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you want to modify it in your state, you got to pay for that yourself. Oh, my and God. So like a lot of states, including Texas, have just not updated it. Right. And even if you did, it's not the kind of thing that's designed for real time tracking it's designed for sort of far more discrete like you know uh chunks of time but not like every day all of the tests right and so like it's gotten so bad in texas like so unu the 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 system's gotten so unusable that people are now like first of all the state has just like contracted out to deloitte for some 1.1 million dollar system that no one in this, like half of the municipalities in the state don't want to use because right. they've like MacGyvered together their own like <laughs> custom uh, data systems. Sometimes yeah. which just includes like chains of faxes. And I mean, the data is just stored often like in paper. Well, in Excel um, spreadsheets too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or in Excel spreadsheets. Right. Um, and the, I mean, the other thing is just like the stories about like how this data is being recorded are, I mean, the whole, uh, like oopsie of the Excel spreadsheet pales in comparison. The story I like the best was that um, with so many people involved in collecting and transmitting information, their data entry and translation errors. Uh, the Hidalgo County health official has seen uh, Hidalgo spelled with an E or Donna written down as donut. Um, oh God. So someone was hungry just, or auto. So I mean, it's just like the, the idea that to me, when I see errors like this, it's, it is surprising to me that with the sort of like level of budget austerity in the United States and the idea that like we've just been hemorrhaging epidemiologists for the last decade or two, that Mm -hmm. like you wouldn't see more. I mean, I'm sure that there are more problems that are out there that we just haven't seen yet. Right. Right. And uh, we're only really seeing the tip of the iceberg now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's uh, I heard from a listener recently who works uh, in a medical examiner's office who said that they were fine with me sharing the story on the show because they wanted people to hear it, but they said that they've had a computer system problem. So they've had to print out their death reports and death certificates and then like hand them to a messenger to then like take them to a county office because the like electronic submission system is broken. Um, So you have someone who has to physically go in person to a morgue to grab papers printed out in the morgue and take them into an office, which feels like maybe an inefficient use of time right now and a potential disease vector. You know, I, I think there are like so many instances of this right now that we, we have going on where like, you know, like, yeah, we could throw all of our energy behind centrally planning a massive 
senior citizen lockdown a la Martin <laughs> Kulldorff, right? The, uh, the sort of stratified lockdown. Take the most vulnerable and isolate them somewhere else out of sight and send the young back to school and work. Right. Like we could do that. Or Perhaps we could... if we merely segregated the undesirables from <laughs> the economy and society. Hmm. I did want to yeah. say it, but like that is that's what it's saying. There is yeah. a sort of resonance mm-hmm. there. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, why is Martin Kaldorf not advocating that we take this kind of central planning and apply it towards data and research and public health departments? Because that seems like a much better use of time right now than, <laughs> I don't know, like wasting time talking about herd immunity or even like what's going on right now with like the the whole like debate theater going on right we've got yeah. a, a narrative of like hygiene theater which is like way more important and more interesting for people to talk about than oh we need to make sure that local health departments have like computer systems that work and can collect data and that we can use the data right like we're we're willing to take like a flashy argument of like why things need to go back to normal and why we don't need to change anything and nothing needs to work and it's it's um, I, it's only going to last so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this does get back to sort of the thing that I was uh, setting up from the top, which is like, you know, I, I, I think we're comfortable saying here, like, this is the, like, we're that we're in the second wave. We now, are right. Um, we're going to call it. Whether, yeah, we're calling it. Um, but I, I guess you know, my question is, what does it take to actually like acknowledge that? Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean yeah, yeah. It's, it's not about the, I don't think it's about like the, that, that's like, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with uh, data accuracy on, on these things and like how bad these infrastructures are. But like, as I, I think that's, that's important for the actual management of the pandemic and the, you know, the, the sort of on the ground public health strategies. Right. But when it comes to like public consciousness, I don't really think it matters quite as much because look here we are with the level of cases and deaths that we have. And there's still a sort of, I, I don't know, uh, a far more um, passive mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, I, again, don't want to call it COVID fatigue, but like clearly it's like the registering of these things numerically has not affected people. Right. Because they're mm-hmm. just described in this way where it's like, they're not telling you about your life chances. They're not telling you about the life chances of your loved ones. They're just telling you about this aggregate I don't really think that that I think the idea that like if we just keep talking about the big scary number that that's going to be the thing that drives it is is so ludicrous and wrong. Right. Right. And I mean, while the reporting on like the case numbers in a daily fashion does have like a useful metric in some capacity, like particularly as it relates to what is the like hospital capacity and ICU capacity day to day, Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily like benefit us sociopolitically to be uh, reporting cases on a day-to-day basis because instead of like 7,500 last week, you get 1,000 on Tuesday, 1,000 on Wednesday, 1,300 on Thursday, 1,500 on Friday. And then like, you know, slowly we go from everyone's talking about, you know, okay, we're at 200,000 deaths, we're at 200,000 deaths, now we're at 211,000 deaths. And there seems to be like absolutely no... 
acknowledgement of the fact that that's 11,000 additional individual people, human lives or that were like taken from us. Or the fact that we went from 190,000 to 200,000 slower than we just went from 200,000 to 211,000, for you. example. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I think is an intentional framing. Like, <laughs> it is malpractice, yeah. in my opinion, on on behalf of like our, our state administrators who are like deciding that they're going to foreground this sort of seven day rolling average, right? Or, or again, decisions like, for example, you know, uh, at like, oh, I hate that I'm going to say this, minor credit to fucking Bill de Blasio for at least saying like, oh, we'll, we'll start to say like, let's shut down uh, like these areas. Er- I mean, again, it, even that is inadequate, but like saying like, okay, we'll shut down uh, stuff in these areas. Um, because like the, the response of like, uh, uh, like Andrew Cuomo saying, no, no, you can't, you can't shut those down. We'll decide like mm-hmm. when to shut those down and, and what areas and we'll redraw the map of what area exactly because, you know, zip codes aren't, aren't as precise or whatever. Um, for, for Cuomo to do that, like, guess what is going to happen except for like, I mean, remember in March, like the, the decision to wait additional weeks to mm-hmm. confirm okay mm-hmm. indeed we have you know tons and tons of people fucking dying in icu <laughs> is it right a pandemic now. i think let's wait yeah right okay confirmed <laughs> let's shut it down now <laughs> that decision to wait weeks when we fucking know the disease timeline it's very fucking obvious like this mm-hmm. is again the, like we have this is we aren't we are not naive on this fucking right novel virus anymore like to 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 just say like no no, we're going to continue to wait again it's like you're just you're literally just co-signing a bunch of deaths for no reason Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. i I mean i think what you just said the the co-signing of these deaths is is a very important point because as much sort of opprobrium as there has been about the management of this of this whole disaster it's still phrased in ways that allow, as we've talked about over and over again, but I think in, in ways that become even sharper to me now, uh, but it allows for sort of indemnification of mm-hmm. people who are in troll. I mean, who are, who have the ability to, to change things. But I mean, when I look at the uh, state legislative leaders in Wisconsin, you know, not just, not just like saying that there should be no mask mandate in the state, but like actively litigating to have the Supreme court strike it down and Mm. telling people that masks aren't effective uh, over and over again. It's like, no, I'm sorry. You're all criminals. uh, When you're doing that, we can attribute a certain number of deaths to those actions because we know where these things are occurring. We know like in general, what people have been led to believe. I mean, these are things that there there will need to be a truth and reconciliation commission on. These are crimes against yes. humanity, but yes. no one is, I mean, and I think a couple of months ago, you know, saying that you would have been accused of, of hyperbole, but that's more or less, you know, th- there's an interesting sort of rhetorical move. The new England journal of medicine has this edit, big editorial out from its editors, basically saying that, uh, you know, people in political office, Uh, who have mismanaged this, they are responsible for those deaths. Now, here's the interesting rhetorical move. They say that these people have claimed immunity uh, from responsibility here, but our, um, our, the, the the moment where we get to hold them accountable for these deaths is at the ballot box, right? That's their, (laughs) 
thing. <laughs> and, and for me, it's like, no, that I, I don't think that that is sufficient to say. Uh, I mean, I, I still think that that allows you to treat things in this political realm where these are discretionary policy choices and we can still, there's still some separation because you're dealing, you're punishing people in the electoral realm, which I, I just, I don't really know. I don't think that that's, I don't really think that that's an effective way of, uh, you know, incentivizing people to take different kinds of actions in the future is all I'm saying. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I, yes, maybe this obviously. is actually a perfect moment to to move on to the definitely um, highly requested report out from the CBO about how to get most people covered with insurance, <laughs> which has some truly revolutionary ideas. Yeah, I think it's appropriate to cap off our conversation uh, on this uh, on the sort of beginning of the second wave with a I think really good example of how despite i don't know everything that has happened this year (laughs) essentially nothing has changed in uh i don't know in 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 uh the vaulted halls of uh things like the congressional budget office or you know these places where like i don't know policy is tried and tested through some sort of gauntlet put, put through its paces a gauntlet yeah. exactly <laughs> a I think crucible of, yeah i kind of think of the the cbo like i don't know the, like the, the cbo uh we, we we talk about you know they're, they're kind of like a favored um not exactly villain but sort of like punching bag yeah punching bag or punchline for us um they're in some ways like the real blood tontine shit like when i imagine this the congressional budget office um which like rates uh, basically like, you know, the, their main function, I guess, essentially seems to be to be be the uh, watchdog and grader or something like the stop and go light of like whether something is going to cost the government money or yes. not. Like I just That's imagine right. them. I just imagine them like um, a group of like when I imagine the Congressional Budget Office meeting, I imagine like a group of people dressed like bloodless FBI agents, but they're all wearing like dollar store Halloween cloaks or something and Burger King crowns, <laughs> like chanting like fear the old gods, fear the deficit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's worth noting like the CBO, it it actually does do some some really good research. But the thing about it is that like Congress has basically asked Congress created it. Right. Congress could change what it does. But the way that it's situated now is like what the main thing that Congress wants advice on, apparently, is just how much things cost. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily want advice typically about what the long run benefits would be <laughs> to any living human being, because the budget sort of architecture of Congress uh, emphasizes the importance of demonstrating that you pay for things before you spend things, even though we're not a household budget right. uh, we're government. Well, um, and, and really quick before, before we continue, I just want to say what we are discussing now is a new report from the, uh, uh, the congressional budget office called quote policies to achieve near universal health insurance coverage. Yeah. This, this is a, this is a report that I, I think it's worth, uh, when you look at something like this, it's, it's always worth going to the part of, of the document that says, uh, how this document was created or why it was written, <laughs> right. because it's not like the CBO just issued this because it wanted to, uh, a, the, the chair of the house budget committee, which 
has, you know, a fairly powerful role in the, in the budget process. Uh, John Yarmouth, um, not, I believe a supporter of Medicare for all by any means, um, (laughs) uh, asked the CBO to issue this report. And, you know, this is really important because like the power of the CBO is not just in its ability to say what things will cost in the future. Um, it's, its power comes from the fact that budget committee members and others in Congress use its pronouncements and its sort of like definitions of reality right. to mm-hmm. frame what is a policy alternative and how we should think about it. And so really what this report does is it doesn't necessarily cost anything out. It just tells you what the different options for, as we said before, near universal coverage <laughs> right. uh, mm-hmm. would be. Which, and, which, and that's important because, you know, what are those options? Who should define them? Um, should we leave the entire, should we give the game away entirely to the budget committee? Like, I think not. <laughs> right. Well, and I, and I think that that thing of that thing that you said, Phil, is really important of the, the way that they set definitions for, uh, for like, you know, the, their interpret, the Congress's interpretation of reality is really important because, you know, you, you made fun of that term near universal, um, they have a specific definition of near universal uh, right at the top in the summary uh, of this. And so according to the Congressional Budget Office, near universal health coverage, um, health insurance coverage is uh, anything that is uh, quote, close to 99 percent of citizens and non-citizens <laughs> who are lawfully present, lawfully present oof, yeah. in this country, yeah. uh, insured uh, by you know some means. So I just want to point out that according to the CBO, that means that you can call a policy near universal health coverage if around 3.2 million people are completely uninsured. Oh, I know a way to make this (laughs) revenue neutral. Um, The CBO should also recommend that if you have a pre-existing condition, you lose your citizenship and therefore here <laughs> illegally so you no longer are covered now that's, that's a pathway the, to universal coverage well, that's exactly. the, uh, that, that's the uh the same the same like uh 10-year window trick that all the republicans use to like balance the budget on uh on their tax cuts it's uh democrats but, use it too hell. yeah fair fair <laughs> yeah uh Maybe they're born with it. Maybe it's revenue neutral. Maybe it's a 10-year um, window. Oh my God, I just feel so revenue neutral today. Yeah. Um, but let's, let, let's get into what some of these are. So, they, yeah, they have, like, what, four options. Um, it is worth noting that the fourth option to, quote-unquote, near universal health coverage is um, a single-payer health care system. They, however, devote the least amount of space uh, to mm-hmm. talking about it. Um, and they ba- they <laughs> basically kind of... They, they, like, I, the, the summary section for single-payer is really funny because they kind of, like... They they do a little stuff about they they hand wave about oh, like I mean not not in a not in a dramatic fashion but as far as a very dry policy document can hand wave they like are hand waving about like it would it would be the biggest uh like it, it would be the hugest structural change um and it would it would require the creation of a lot of new taxes there have to be a lot of like different new taxes in order to fund this program and then they say at the very end. But, uh, yeah, and then uh, people would be covered. People would be covered for the rest of their lives. <laughs> um, <laughs> like Until the moment which they're not here legally. Yeah, well, right. they very like, well, I mean, that's a whole other thing JK, because JK. they they literally, they discount the, the 
very idea that uh they they discount the idea that like is present in single payer advocate circles which is that just like whatever if you're here you're just like if you're getting treatment in the United States you're just covered under the single yeah. payer but I mean I I think the my uh you know a lot of this report is like pretty descriptive and it tells you what these different whatever plans are and that's fine I think the um thing that is really left out of this report that is striking but telling is the word <laughs> under insurance like yeah. coverage in all of these four plans is more or less treated as homogeneous mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i mean it's it's like pretty obvious that that is going to vary and <laughs> they have all of these tables they have two tables like describing how the different things are and like Ugh. the <laughs> effectively the question of like actuarial value <laughs> is mm-hmm. left out right and well, yeah. yeah they didn't have enough rows they we ran should, out of rows right they <laughs> forgot that go, part they left it on the csv file exactly we should go to the well to the at least the figure figure one in fact there's just no section in this table or in this like figure that shows people who are eligible for marketplace subsidies but still can't fucking afford them good lord yeah well i okay i think i think um it's important to uh, to highlight. So, since you know most people, I don't. I don't think that anyone should bother. Um, none of our listeners should. I would not recommend bothering to to uh, read this. Frankly, um, not be posted in do the show. Do not recommend. No, yeah. but I, I do think it, it tells us some really interesting things um, that, like, we can we can then sort of like carry forward to describe about. I think uh, some of the some of the contours of how the, let's say. Uh, I don't know. Let's say if like a a, a ref, minor reform minded administration <laughs> were to come in, um, yeah. Right? So the they have they have these uh, four options. As I mentioned, the fourth one is a single pair, and they don't dedicate very much time to it. The first two, um, which I, I do want to get into, are like variations on uh, sort of like adding a adding a public option essentially. Um, and then and approach three is the most curious to mm-hmm. me um, because approach three is literally, okay, so imagine a world where the problem is, right? You've got the universal, man- you've got like, you know, we had the universal mandate, the universal mandate was undone. This report says basically you have to have like a mandate to like buy health insurance. To Not like just make a mandate, like a um, really strictly punitive right, right. mandate. With like, Big fines if you don't buy it. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, and, but approach three is literally like, okay, so what if, like, I want, just imagine the fucking, I, I, I want you to like, <laughs> listen, listen to this explanation and I want you to imagine like, what this what, would look like. What the fuck, like, I, whatever, this, this to me is like a, this to me is like Joe Rogan sitting and puffing a fucking joint and like, what if you solved healthcare this way? Like, <laughs> approach approach three, a multi-payer system that provides full subsidies for all people to purchase a private plan of their choice with a default plan that provides automatic coverage to people who do not enroll in a plan of their own. Now, uh-huh. <laughs> I just want to like to translate that so we can talk about it. What that means is essentially the idea that the federal government would provide, um, and if you look into the details that they're suggesting, they would provide a refundable tax credit for people to uh, be able to basically have, like, the the government would pay for their premium. Mm -hmm. Not anything else about their health coverage, but they would Mm -hmm. pay for your premium 
purchasing a health insurance plan on the exchange, literally doing a like that, that would be literally creating basically a like effectively that (laughs) that's like the most expensive way of basically doing a a bad privatized single payer program because you're literally you're having the you're having the federal government pay (laughs) like pay individual private health insurance companies for the premium for everyone (laughs) so that those health insurance companies can what continue to like operate and make like record profits and just like not worry about chasing people down for premiums, I guess, and focus all (laughs) of their efforts on denying coverage and claims so that they can get additional money from people. See, Artie, you're forgetting the fact (laughs) that this is actually going to represent a significant strain on the budget. No, on the, (laughs) on the insurers themselves, they're taking a really big hit here because, you know, insurers have relied on the fact that they can, you know, through slight billing snafus or lost bills or changes in your premium by 13 cents, they can, you know, just drop your coverage randomly willy nilly. And so they're going to actually be really sacrificing a lot because insurance (laughs) companies are going to lose being able to deny all those claims. And so they're losing one of their favorite excuses to not pay for health care. And therefore, this is a very, you know, bipartisan, um, aggressive, progressive suggestion. Yeah. I mean, look, my version of that, my aggressive, progressive suggestion that that respects (laughs) the insurers is um, we do single payer and then we have a we are the world type of musical event for the insurers, (laughs) you know, and we'll all, you know, Lionel Richie. We'll have Lionel Richie singing. We'll have um, are, are we gonna Huey, float Huey, Huey Lewis in the news. Um, <laughs> it'll be good. It'll be good. I swear. Are we gonna then yeah. float them all out on like a on an iceberg or something? What? Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> are we doing? Is this like in preparation for a Viking funeral or something? So uh, there's you a know, choice we're making. Matter, You're really. going on an ice float. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. I mean, back, back back to the the sort of like you know, imagine if a let's say light reform uh, heavy on the neoliberal um, administration mm-hmm. uh, comes in. Like, let's say, okay, I want to like I want I want to point out like I guess one other thing that's in this plan. So we talked about so you know there are these four options. The fourth option is single payer. The third option is private insurance jubilee hmm. free money for <laughs> insurers uh the third option is basically we are the, the we are the world but like the government's footing the bill <sighs> as, for everything yeah um that whatever footing the bill means you know whatever it's just like <laughs> spending you want to you want to fucking concern troll about the deficit and say that we're gonna pay everyone's insurance premiums instead of doing a single payer program go ahead buddy great job but like well, we're um, just gonna the, pay rant pay a ransom this is what is really what it is. I, but I want to I want to point out one thing that they say about uh, options uh, one and two, which again are these two different variations. Like f- they're they're floating mm-hmm. about basically doing a public option because they, they get into this whole idea that you may recognize as something that Joe Biden went very hard on right mm-hmm. uh, in in the in the debate, which we played the clip of uh, last week about how you know people who are eligible like the way that the public option will work, quote unquote, <laughs> is that like people who are eligible for Medicaid will automatically be enrolled uh, in 
this like public option in the, the sort of like default fallback uh, <laughs> option, right? Yeah, he reassured everyone it'll um, only be for people who are poor. Don't no, worry. <laughs> uh, you know, building off of what Phil was saying earlier about how the CBO, the Congressional Budget Budget Office, has the you know ability here to sort of set the tone for. Uh, like, you know, defining some of these these terms or defining the prescriptive ways in which like some of these uh, these like things will be will be implemented or, or like policy suggestions really for how, how it could be thought of. Right. Let me just tell you uh, how the Congressional Budget Office um, uh, suggests that you will do uh, that. You will like preserve the current system by adding a public option that people who, you know, uh, don't enroll or qualify will be default enrolled in, <laughs> right? And I just want to point out, like, what I'm about to read, it is a shame that this did not come out during the primary because this could be a fucking campaign ad for single pair right mm. here. Listen to this. Um, so they say, how would you, so they, they try to tackle the question, how would you identify people <laughs> who are eligible, uh, who should be automatically enrolled, right? Um, tell me tell me if this sounds like something that you would enjoy to happen to you. Uh, under approaches one and two, the, the, uh, the public option, uh, default plan, the IRS would need to identify the coverage status of all income tax filers and determine their eligibility for premium subsidies in order to collect premium equivalent taxes. When tax returns are filed, each person's insurance status and eligibility for subsidized coverage would be assessed for each month of the previous calendar year. Holy for shit. each month that an individual did not have an alternative source of coverage, the person would be considered to have been covered by the default plan, and depending on that person's income and eligibility for premium subsidies, he or she would owe additional tax payments. If default mm. coverage was partially subsidized, the premium equivalent tax would be set equal to the premium of the default plan minus any premium tax credits or subsidies for which the person was eligible. So they're offering up the IRS as the collections agency for private insurance companies. <laughs> I mean, pe- people love dealing with the IRS, right? Yeah, what, um, if it, what if instead we let, instead of letting people make the decision to not pay for insurance because they can't afford it because they want to pay for like housing or food instead, what if instead we took that choice away from them and just took it out of their money in taxes instead? And listen to this. Uh, quote, under proposals in which the Medicaid and CHIP programs continued to exist and provide uh, default coverage for people who were eligible for those programs, uh, which is their, which is what the CBO called their approach number one, uh, the IRS would have to identify whether people were eligible for those programs to determine whether they would be responsible for taxes to finance the default plan. What a great way to make the idea of a public option or uh, single payer appear to be incredibly unattractive, bureaucratically messy and punitive. Complicated, punitive. How? Yeah. And like it's going to cost you a bunch of fucking extra taxes. <sighs> yeah, it's it's insane that. Yeah, exactly. It's insane that they were able to make automatic enrollment to medic essentially what is like automatic enrollment to medicaid like somehow a greater administrative burden like congratulations that's that's impressive well it is a greater administrative burden if you don't just have a fucking universal program no matter what right that's the thing god i i have an update I have an update, a Kevin Klein update. Um, I, I rewatched the scene from the movie Dave that I talked about in the Patreon, um, and like I, I misremembered it. I thought that the big 
special political moment was when he balanced the budget, but it's actually worse than that. It's more, it's more, it's actually more of a democratic party fantasia, even though I think oh, no. he's supposed to be a Republican in the, in the movie, but What's the um, difference really the, it's like, he's so in order to win the affection of Sigourney Weaver, um, he, uh, promises to save a program for homeless people, but he can only do it if he finds the money from elsewhere on the budget. And that's, and it's like, so he's like cutting all of these things. But it's like, so that we can save that program. But like, that's the, it's like, it's only good if it somehow pays for itself or doesn't cost any additional money. Like that yeah. is the, like the fact that that is the criterion is so just unbelievably malevolent. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Like it can hold things up for years to just perpetuate the misconception that it's too expensive. And we've seen that decade after decade with single payer. And I'm fucking sick of it. Yeah. I really can't wait for, uh, you know, the rosy situation where uh, Joe Biden wins a bunch of like, uh, like, you know, liberals top toss up their hats and, and cheer and like stop paying attention. And then uh, <laughs> like Republicans concern troll successfully leverage their like fucking talking points on like the the deficit that was created by the coronavirus stimulus so that joe biden finally gets his fucking wish and cuts medicare like uh, <laughs> you're expecting that the year 2011 will occur again correct just yeah. worse yeah the it'll thing just that's be reasonable. called 2021 yeah oh yeah i can't wait to it's find out great. how uh, small <laughs> my, my ssdi is going to be next year with medicare going up and ssdi not going up yeah yeah well you know I think we all need to watch Dave, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. Uh, <laughs> you need to take some downers before that. I just want to warn you. <laughs> Sedate myself. Is it too real, basically? It's, it's way too real. There's a, there's a very special moment with a special sort of delicatessen sandwich. Uh, it's, it's it, you know, manufacturing jobs. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's just really, yeah. Phil, did you say did thing. you say I should take ketamine and watch TV? Okay. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with that we'll uh, we'll call it a day. Yep. 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 Um thank you for listening to the show. If you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash death panel pod. You get access to the bonus episodes. Again, Mondays was fantastic and highly recommend. Also, if you're uh one one thing, um, that I would uh, recommend, like for, for instance, if you're if you're like a new patron, is um about like uh, also uh, thank you. We got a bunch of uh, people have like hopped on since we released uh, that episode on on Trump's uh, COVID condition. Um, but if so, if you're a new patron, or even if you're uh, let's say you know if you've been listening for a while or maybe like uh, missed it, I would actually say. Uh, we like we talked a lot in the in the patron episode this week about people reading like tea leaves on the president's condition <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I actually want to want to point to is that we talk a lot in the uh, episode called the uh, patron only episode called COVID Explained mm-hmm. about the actual disease process and sort of the timeline um, that you can you can kind of like expect. And uh, I would highly suggest. Um, that one like listening back to that one if you haven't um that's already, a great point just, just because like I've, i feel like I've, I've actually like answered a lot of uh like random texts from 
people in just the last week like nah trump's not out of the woods yet unless that regeneron <laughs> shit was really good like uh <laughs> trump's like not out of the woods yeah actually um, that's a great pointer because a lot of uh, friends of the show in europe actually have reached out saying that they were convinced that trump actually isn't sick right so i've directed them back to that episode because i'm like actually if you think and look at the disease process <laughs> and you consider the timeline no <laughs> this makes you know timeline steroids the map also like you know die not saying that i'm just sorry you know well also even even trump's ascent of this like uh, you know ascending the stairs to give his like huff and puff uh speech address uh with his mask off or whatever when he when he came back from walter reed like it it's easy to take advantage of like those moments when you're ill to like do a photo op let's say oh yeah it's you know you can have really good moments and then be like you know we have no idea what what actually is going on he may actually be extremely sick and just doing again these like proof of life videos or whatever right i mean there are are episodes of this show that we have recorded while i've been getting an infusion and taking or moments after you got back from an er visit yes and (laughs) you know i i mean it's like we did it all for you (laughs) so so if b can do that and these episodes are what like an hour and a half trump can definitely talk for five minutes in a video oh yeah Yeah. there was one time where i was getting an not one time there have been several episodes where i've been getting infusions of steroids during the episode in our medicare for all week interview with tim faust at one point (laughs) i got so worked up that i was like hold on guys we have to take five seconds. I can feel like my pulse is just pounding because I had to do my, I had to, I had an attack and I had to do my IV steroids and I wanted to get it done before Tim was over so we could record and then hang out, you know, so got to pound the roids before you sit down with your friends to record the podcast. You know what I mean? Become a patron. <laughs> <laughs> all right, tight. That was tight. And on that note, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Seek the pale blood to transcend the hunt. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, no. I live for drugs.
It's also Let's funny. Let's be honest. I don't think people are coming to the death panel for fly takes today. Yeah. I've given up on fly discourse. By I'm oversaturated yes. with fly. I promise I will not put the Deftones change in the House of the Flies as the outro <laughs> track. Not. I will not. I'm actually, I'm not, saying I will actually not. But now. Pretty fly uh, for a white guy. Sorry. All right. I'm done. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> if I, um, yeah. yeah if all I, fly takes are lib takes now. Yeah, if I put this at the at the end as like a secret teaser, congratulations, I've made you imagine that song in your head. That's all. <laughs> oh my God. Um. <laughs>